0: For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: Welcome to The Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily
2: commercial real estate podcast.
0: Our hosts interview commercial real estate
1: experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
3: Hello, Best Ever listeners, and welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host for today, Paul Mueller, and today we're going to start counting down to the new year by looking back at some of the best episodes from The Best Ever Show in 2023. Now, as the world's longest-running daily real estate podcast, we obviously have a ton of great content to look back on, and this year's been no different. So what we've done, and what we'll do over the next five days heading into 2024, is pull some of our favorite best-ever segments from the shows throughout the year, so you can get educated and inspired as we move into the new year. In this episode, we'll focus on multifamily, pulling clips from episodes with Vikram Raya, Patrick Grimes, Jay Balakar, and the king of creative finance, Pace Morby. You can find links to each of their episodes in the show notes. We'll start with Vikram Raya. Vikram is the CEO and co-founder of Viking Capital and of Limitless MD, which helps top-level doctors make more passive and active income while pursuing their passions. In his full episode, where he spoke with our host Ash Patel, Vikram talked about his transition from life as a practicing cardiologist to a full-time multifamily syndicator. And in this best-ever excerpt, Vikram discusses how he went from 0 to $700 million in assets under management in about eight years, including the mistakes he made along the way. He also breaks down the fear he had when acquiring his first property, a 118-unit deal on a Class C property outside of Atlanta that he and his partners only got the inside track on because the lead buyer backed out after there was a murder at the property. I'll let Ash and Vikram take it from here.
1: In roughly eight years, you've got over $700 million of AUM. How did that happen?
4: It happened because we made mistakes. We got burned. We chose bad partners, but we took steps. The way I think about it is I'm a frog and I'm jumping on the lily pad. And I sort of know what the 10th lily pad looks like, but sort of don't but I just know what the f- next one in front of me looks like. And I keep jumping and hoping that the lily pad doesn't sink. It's <laughs> are so,
1: Frogger. There's cars. Yeah, it's Frogger,
4: really. And you have mentors, you have people who maybe done something similar, so you can learn from them a little bit. You learn sort of best practices, how to run your day, how to run your health, how to run your meetings, how to run your relationships, how to run your teams. And you get specialized knowledge and then you just take action and then A lot of times what you're doing is right. Sometimes it's wrong. You're just hoping that what's wrong is not enough to kill you or sink you. And you learn from them and then you just keep moving forward and forward. So that's really how we got there. We didn't think we're going to get to that number. We just thought, let's just buy our first property. How do we buy our second property? How do we fund our third one? Because I think we're tapped out. (laughs) But no, we've made a ton of mistakes along the way. Some of the worst I've made are choosing bad partners. I would say that was one of the, Mistakes I still hold to this day. Any relationship I'm in, I vet that relationship. I make sure we're aligned, that it's collaborative. It's not competitive. We're complementary versus similar in what we bring to the table. So I think relationships are one of the biggest mistakes I've made. Number two is sometimes not thinking big enough. Number three is I didn't realize how powerful marketing is and advertising and learning to package and brand yourself. So I think that was important. Next is I was trying to do a lot of things. Simultaneously, and that was a mistake. I was like, okay, I can run a health and wellness clinic. I can still be a cardiologist. I can still run a real estate company. And I want to be a coach. That's a setup for failure. And I was stuck in this sort of mediocre level for a couple of years because of that. Look, I have multiple interests, but I'm going to make one of these, my primary interest. And I'm going to go all out for that one thing. That's when I started exploding. And then this concept of elf and half, Ash. So it's like, what is easy, lucrative, and fun, and I enjoy doing? That's my elf, and I need to lean into that. And what's half? What is not in my, my zone of genius? It's hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. Half, H-A-L-F. So I started noticing which things came easier to me. It was fun. I was making money, and I enjoyed doing it. I leaned into those, and I pushed the other ones to the back burner. And that's what really made a lot of the differences in things. But I think people just need to lean into what their zone of genius is because we have a lot of zone of excellences where we're good at a lot of things, but zone of genius is where we're untouchable. That's what you're meant to do.
1: Yeah, great advice. Best ever listeners, I want you to take what he said and try to apply it in your life, especially for those real estate entrepreneurs that are inundated because maybe they're a solo shop and they're doing it all, or maybe they're starting to build out their team. It's so important to do a time audit and figure out what you enjoy and what makes you money. And offload the things that either you're not good at, things that you don't enjoy, and things that don't make you a lot of money. So, so important. Vikram, let's go back to the old Vikram when you were sneaking out to real estate meetups and you had just read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. What was your mindset as you took down your first property?
4: I was scared. I was nervous. I didn't know I could raise the capital for it. So my first property was in Atlanta. I had done a couple of co-GPs where me and my buddy, Ravi Gupta, we both founded Viking Capital. But really, we were both physicians just doing this as a side gig. And we had raised money for three deals. And we felt proud of ourselves. We thought we were cool. But we knew that to get in the game, we wanted to be owner-operators. The people we partnered with, they promised us, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get you your own deal. But we had raised a good amount of money for them. They were sort of disincentivized to help us do our own because they wanted us to stay with them. So it was a risky move to let go of that because that was safe and that was comfortable and it was comfortable for them, comfortable for us. But we made the decision, let's just get into this and let's do this. And look, I've studied cardiology. I think I can figure this real estate thing out. And if not, at least it was a worthy pursuit. So what we happened was we got this 118 unit deal in Atlanta, South Atlanta, in a little bit of a C neighborhood. And we were runner ups on the deal. And we're like, okay, maybe next time. And it took us two years of broker relationships with that one brokerage house for them to trust us enough to take us into the whole process and get us to where we almost won the deal. Group from New York won it. And then we're like, okay, whatever. We just move on. We're bummed, but it was okay. We get a phone call a week later saying there's a murder on the property. And then the group from New York backed out. They're like, it's too risky for us. We're out. And they asked us, do we want it? Otherwise, we're going to go back to the process, and market the deal again. That's when me and my partner were like, we had a gut check. We're like, what are we doing? We're supposed to be in a hospital. I'm supposed to be putting a stent in people. Am I really going to take down a C-class deal in South Atlanta that just had a murder on the property? What
1: the- <laughs> Hell okay. yeah, let's go.
4: <laughs> One of the things as a high-income professional, you have analytical skills. So we use that. Okay. What's fact from fiction? So we talked to the police department. We looked at the statistical record. We looked at the crime record. We looked at the community. We looked at the path of progress. Is this a chronic thing or is this a one-off random thing? Is this something we can overcome? So we went through all of that analysis. And then at some point, we just took a leap of faith and said, you know what? I don't think this is a chronic thing. I think we can turn this around. And we just did it. And it ended up being one of our best deals ever. So we bought that deal. We bought the deal next door, which was a completely vacant 62 unit that was bringing our property down. And then we had to just get, beg, borrow, and steal because it was completely vacant. So no one would give us a loan on it. And we ended up selling, we bought the whole thing, I guess, if you could put all of it together for 8 million, we ended up selling for 13 million three years later. And so it was one of our best projects ever. I definitely lost some hair on that one, (laughs) but it was good.
1: You mentioned hard lessons learned about partners. What's your advice to people who are looking to form a
4: partnership? To form a partnership, I would say learn about who you are, what you're good at, what your skills are, and also consider using something called the DISC score, which I'm sure a lot of your other guests have talked about. D-I-S-C. It's a personality score. Ds are drivers, decision makers, or go-getters. I's are very eloquent. They're very congenial. They can speak to a lot of people. They're networkers. S's are very steadfast. I would put S and C's together as steadfast and conscientious. They're the data analyst people. They can underwrite. They're very good at details. So usually people fall into one of those three categories. So if you're one thing, try to get a partner with the other thing. It's a nice complementary skill set. The other thing is make sure your goals and visions are aligned. If you want to get to a billion dollars of assets and someone else wants to just buy one multifamily property and just chill out, it may not work. And then there's such thing as one, two, three, and many. No more than three partners I've never seen a four partnership thing work ever. I've seen solopreneur with a ton of employees around them. I've seen a two partner relationship work amazing. Three can work as well, but then four falls apart. And then know your roles and things. There's a book called Rocket Fuel. Gino Wickman really talks about the visionary integrated relationship. But I've realized that now it's instead of one being over the other, it sometimes doesn't work like that. It's actually sort of their yin and yang. You know, that yin and yang Korean symbol, the black and white, white and black. It's more of that kind of relationship I found versus me over somebody and them underneath me or something. So I'm the CEO, my partner's the CEO, but really we'll sort of work hand in hand. It's almost like a co-CEO model. And I really think if people have that in mind, that's a really powerful way to move about it. And then when they partner on projects, let's say you need money for a deal or you need deal flow or you need something. Be careful in that partnership. Make sure that you vet the personnel, make sure they really understand what, and if you can retain operational control, meaning even if you bring in a partnership, when push comes to sub, you can say, hey, look, in the end, if there's a tie, I'm the tiebreaker, I can go forward. And so I think if you have some of those tenants in mind, you can have a successful relationship.
1: What's the story of a bad partnership that you had and what were your lessons learned?
4: So our third deal where we doing it on our own, I think at that point, a $35 million deal, we didn't have the capability to take that down. So I was in a coaching program and the person teaching asset management seemed like a really nice person. So I'm like, oh, hey, why don't we partner and take down the deal together? Oh my like, who better than the, the teacher who teaches asset management? And it was one of the worst decisions I ever made. Her and her husband came in. They tried to help us on this project and they brought in a, another person with whom we didn't know. So that's already a red flag when they bring in someone else you don't know. So it's those two groups and us, and no one group could make a decision, but two groups could outvote the third group, and that was where the problem lies. We we're very fast where we, we go in, we're like a SWAT team, we want to renovate, move on, and go quickly. they were on to analysis of paralysis, they want to analyze things, and it was just not a good fit, it was not a good team fit and we ended up still making money on it, but not as much money as we could have, and overall, it was just a long, painful process. And I wish we had retained operational control. I wish we had vetted our partners out more. I'd rather have done a smaller deal just on ourselves than bring on a partner just to do a bigger deal.
1: I think those bad partnership stories is what teaches you how to find good partners. Yes. And my advice also to the best of listeners is it's always more fun doing things together. If you want to go far, go together, but you can try out partners deal by deal. I've done this in the past where, I've gotten people that I thought were awesome partners. And we established a company and everything we do from here on out, we're going to do together. And that was difficult. When that fails, you've got to unravel a lot of things. So try out your partners deal by deal.
4: Yeah. And another story, again, you hear all these amazing people on Best Ever, but Ash was giving me some great advice. You can learn a lot from people's successes, but you can learn even more from their failures. So Again, I was like, all right, I want to take our company to the next level. I want to be like a billion plus next year or this year. How do I do it? Let me bring on this guy who's like an ace capital raiser. I'm like, okay. So we tested him out. It seemed great. And then we decided, hey, look, instead of us, a two-man shop, let's make it a three-man shop and let's bring him in. And it was good for the first deal. He was amazing and it was great. But then after that personalities clash, it just started unraveling. And then it became a challenge on how to extricate the relationship and That's when you realize sometimes if two works, keep it at two. And it's if it's a great relationship, that's fine. So if you don't have a bad partnership story, then perhaps you haven't done enough deals yet. But it's from all these different mistakes that now, that's why I think I'm I'm a decent coach. I'm able to share people what not to do. So like, look, guys, here's how I got to success. And here's the 13 to 15 to 19 to 35 mistakes I've made don't make these, make your own and make them small. And then we can get you to where you want to go.
3: Back in July, Ash Patel sat down with Patrick Grimes, the CEO of Invest on Main Street, which allows investors to passively invest in syndications for both multifamily and alternative assets. In his full episode, which I encourage you to listen to, Patrick shared his journey from high tech engineer to real estate investor, which included losing it all in the 2008 housing crisis. In this excerpt, Having been through an economic downturn before, Patrick explains some of the biggest lessons he learned from this economic downturn, including dealing with delinquency issues in the wake of the pandemic, the dance he and his team have to do with insurance companies, and why he errs on the side of under-promising and over-delivering, raising capital to include reserves for the rainy days that many of us faced in 2023.
1: Patrick, we've had a great run of many years arrow went up and to the right, and that's not the case today. Can you give us an example of some lessons learned on deals that you're involved in that maybe paused distributions or didn't meet the pro forma expectations and really the lessons learned from that? Right. For example,
2: having lost everything in real estate once, I was very cautious going into debt products. So I'm happy to say that all of our deals the 26 acquired assets on the real estate side have all had either long-term fixed interest or interests with rate caps. They were all stress-tested to be able to ride out the downturn, meaning that we had break-even occupancies well below where we saw them fall in past recession. And we keep six to eight months in reserves on the sideline so that if some natural disaster were to happen, we could ride it out along with insurance. Now, with all that said, some of those things have happened. After COVID, we had delinquencies rise. Places like Atlanta and Houston, all of a sudden when people stop getting free rent, they decide not to pay. And that happened on a mass scale to the point where we're used to be able to get people out in a month if they didn't pay. It's three and four, and in one case, almost six, where we're struggling to get somebody out. So that slows us down. We are cash flowing on the asset or we are reducing distributions on many of the assets. Because of the slowdown, but just getting people out during COVID has caused some slowdown. We have reached our rate cap on all our assets, which is great, meaning that we weren't fixed interest. We're now not exposed to any further increases in interest rates, which is part of the underwriting. But also, we saw insurance rates go up. Some carriers are leaving areas altogether, so it's a little bit of a dance we're playing, where sometimes we'll get a ten percent insurance increase, a twenty or thirty in some areas, and then we're out shopping. So the compounding effect of these things means that even though we bought for very strong cash flow and and we conservatively projected, and we're still realizing dramatic rent growth in the markets that we're in, because we bought in markets with significant influx of people and rent growth, we're a little bit flatlined at the bottom level for now because of the delinquencies and the insurance going up, as well as much of the rent growth that we created through the value add was consumed by our interest rates rising to hit our cap. At this point, I'm happy to say we're on our way out of that, but it did probably set us back about six months, maybe a year in a property or two in our performance. It did set us back on the timing because we just can't get people out to renovate. And we're working on that now. So we're doing cash for keys in some cases. And as that all comes to fruition, we're able to continue to renovate. The fundamentals of the deals that were bought at steep discounts, very much so under market rents with easy superficial value add lifts that we do through renovations, the fundamentals of the deals are still strong. Having the luxury of hindsight, what
1: should you have done differently?
2: Well, in every single deck I've ever done, instead of trying to project 20 plus IRRs, We've said this is a 15 to 16 IRR. This is a 17 IRR. And we've added all these protections in there. We're going to have a line in every single investor deck that said this was underwritten or the forecast of this investment with an eye towards what happened in 2009 and 10 and not 2015 through 2020. And that line has been in there for many, many years. Nobody really paid attention to it. We kept emphasizing it in every single webinar. Nobody really cared so much about it. They were actually more like, why are you raising this extra million and a half dollars in six to eight months in reserves? That's a lot of money. What are you doing with that? It's just sitting in the account. We even took flack on, well, what are you going to do with it? It's going to get hit by inflation. Well, it's just sitting in the account. So we did as much as we could through those times to prepare ourselves for these times. The more investor education that you can give towards every market is cyclic, the better. For example, on my passive investor guide, it's a free download on my website. Right up in the very beginning, it talks about the diversification of the middle class, the high-income earners, and the ultra-wealthy. The middle class is about an 8% allocation outside of traditional investments. That's everything that's alternative. The middle class is relying on 92% 92% of all of their investments to what their employers put things, put it in the 401k, or maybe they're in the stock market day trading, or maybe they've graduated a financial planner. All of that, 82% is all in the cyclic tax inflation hedge space. But The high-income earners are at 25, and the ultra-wealthy are at 50, and alternative investments. That's private equity, business equity, and real estate. So I like to educate people all along. My story Throughout this huge rapid growth that we've seen to your question, has been I've lost it all in real estate once. You shouldn't have more than half your wealth in real estate. And you shouldn't put more than five percent of your wealth into any particular deal. And you should consider diversifying like the wealthy into non-correlated investments. And that's why we're offering what I believe to be the highest risk adjusted return of multifamily, the way that we structure it with the foundations that we structure it with and the underwriting a debt, as well as diversified energy, both essential needs, as well as with stationary acquisition. Because while you see people's portfolio going down right now and a reset happening in commercial real estate, there's opportunities to take advantage of the downside. There are people that have cash heavy that are out there looking for those deals and buying them. So the education I would give is don't fear the market cycles. They happen. That's part of capitalism. Always going to be going like this and everybody could expect that. But learn how to ride the wave up and learn how to invest on the downturn so that you can at least get exposure to the upside on the downside. Don't fear it, but learn how to invest on the downturn and swoop up those discounted deals. That's the education I think everybody should hear and instead of sitting in fear on the sidelines.
0: We'll get back to the show. But first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors, targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five-year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.com thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital thebamcompanies.com.
3: Back in October, Jay Balakar, the founder of the Compounding Capital Group, joined our newest host, Joe Cornwell, on the Best Ever Show. In his full episode, Jay talked about the strategy that allowed him to leave his W-2 job and scale to 400 plus units in just two years, primarily by investing in his backyard of Cincinnati, Ohio. In this excerpt, At a time now when operating costs are out of control in so many areas and property management has become more crucial than ever, Jay provides his tips on working with third-party property management companies, including how to choose the right management company for your specific asset and neighborhood. Along the way, Joe, who is a former police officer, explains how the broken window theory can be applied to multifamily operations and property management.
5: So what is your approach to making sure your assets are successful with third-party management?
6: I think also in different parts of Cincinnati, we have different property managers that we work with. And primary reason for that is majority of the portfolio that they manage is in that part of town. So if you have someone who is mainly active in Northern Kentucky, and if you have an asset, let's say in Dayton, which is an hour and a half up North and have the same property manager manage, they are going to struggle because now, they have people traveling. So you're basically paying for people just to be on the road. So that way we segregated the property managers based on the neighborhoods and the markets that we are in. But additionally, we are fairly hands-on given that these assets are local. I'm at these properties personally at least every two weeks or so. So I actually know what's happening at the property. So if landscaping was done, and I show up and it's actually not done, I'm able to catch that pretty quick. Similarly, just the common area cleaning. And some of these things might sound trivial, but all of these things have an impact on how happy your tenants are. If the common areas are unclean, if the landscaping is not done correctly, the tenants begin to start noticing that the property is being ignored and then you start having vacancy issues. So it's just a tsunami of things that can hit you if you're not on top of these things. But having these assets locally, we are able to be on top of property management companies as much as possible as asset managers. So that's definitely been helpful, which is why we primarily invest in our backyard to be able to have that attention. So now having said that, You hear a lot of people say that live where you like and invest where numbers make sense. I don't disagree with that. But then you need to have a trusted boots on the ground partner in a new market if you want to invest remotely in a new market.
5: Yeah, I want to touch more on that here in a second. But back to your point about physical appearance of a property, common areas, all those things that, like you said, I think many investors take for granted. And I admittedly took for granted early in my investing journey. It's so interesting to see the dynamic change when you come in as a new owner or manager of a property and want to change the culture, let's say, of an asset and you clean up the ground, clean up all the cigarette butts and the beer cans. The, The last property I just purchased, this was very critical, so it's timely that you said that. It's interesting to see how quickly some of the tenants can adapt because- fundamentally, I think tenants, even in D-class assets, want to live in a nice, safe, clean area. As humans, we all want that. So I'm going to actually relate this back. For anyone who doesn't know, I'm former law enforcement, and there's a theory they teach us in the academy called the broken window theory. And I don't know if you've ever heard that, something like that. Basically, it says that as law enforcement, if you allow broken windows in your town, it's going to invite further crime. It's going to invite further vagrancy. Because it sets the tone in the culture of that community that that's acceptable and that's okay. So it's interesting. And that was the first thing that popped to my mind when you said that, that when you change the culture of an asset, when you take over, you clean it up, you don't allow people littering, you don't allow people throwing cigarettes in the bushes. You don't allow 50 stray cats to be fed on, on, the, on the doorsteps. It creates buy-in from the community, or at least that's the, the goal. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that is a very important thing that many investors, especially throughout the state, and they're not able to keep an eye on the property physically, like you said, having a partner or a a resource to do that is critically important. And another thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned. So it sounds like your approach to finding the right manager is finding somebody that has a micro expertise or dominance in that neighborhood. Can you expound on that a little bit more?
6: Right. Real estate business is a very hands-on business. So you need to have the Systems, processes, people in that neighborhood to support the business. And what I've seen is, especially for the assets that we have, which are smaller to mid sized assets, the type of property management companies who are willing to manage these assets are also on the smaller side. The property managers who manage 20, 30,000 units. They don't want to take on a 20 unit. They want to manage a 200 unit apartment complex. So you don't always have options. So if you're working through the options you have, and as you're going through the list of these property management companies, you want to really get a sense of what they're really good at and in which markets they primarily manage properties, which neighborhoods really. And if your property is an hour away, no matter how good their intentions are, they are going to struggle because they just don't have those systems and people in place an hour away where your asset is located. So although we may have property managers who we have excellent relationships with, if they are not active in that market, we just choose not to work with them unless they are acquiring other assets in that market and actually spinning up an entire team in that neighborhood. In that case, we would consider. But otherwise, we just find another property manager in the area where our asset is, And that mainly comes through talking to other people in the real estate community. So referrals and references are key. And even after all that, you might still come across companies who are not doing a great job. And at that point, you just have to do what's best for your asset and what's best for your investors and and make a
5: switch. So to summarize, it sounds like from a tactical standpoint for the listeners, if you want to find at least a better opportunity at a successful management company, find somebody who has a footprint in the specific type of neighborhood you're buying in, and it is okay if there's not a better option, even if you're in one major metro, to work with several management companies because... You can find the best one for that particular neighborhood that has the resources, the footprint, and isn't going to be sending leasing agents and contractors and maintenance people across an hour, two-hour drive that is obviously inefficient and going to probably cost you more money at the end of the day if you're paying those bills. Awesome.
3: For today's last best ever clip from 2023, we have Pace Morby. You've probably heard Pace Morby's name before, if not on Bigger Pockets or from his YouTube channel, then from the Best Ever podcast, where he appeared on the show back in March to discuss creative finance strategies that he used to acquire 1,500 multifamily doors in 2022. Pace is a creative finance specialist and the founder of Sub2.com, where he teaches about subject to and seller financing strategies to his students. In this excerpt, Pace explains the zero down 4% seller finance deal he did that became the standard for his multifamily deals, as well as how seller financing is easier and more prevalent in multifamily than most investors think. I'll let Pace take us right into it.
7: Most of my multifamily I have acquired on seller finance. So I have gone after 50 to 150 unit complexes owned directly by the seller. I go directly to the seller. Again, multifamily brokers are going to hate me, so sorry. I just bypass the broker, go directly to the seller, make sure they get the top dollar, but I structure in a way that I don't have to worry about this stuff. Last summer, I structured a deal, 43 units, San Angelo, Texas. I've talked about this deal a lot of times. Zero dollars down, zero dollars down, $3 million purchase price, 4% interest, and the seller gave me 50-year terms with no balloon. That's now my standard thing that I pitch on multifamily seller finance. I say 3% interest or lower, $0 down with a 50-year note, no balloon. And with that exact strategy, we acquired probably 600 units out of our 1,500 units last year just by that strategy.
1: What's the biggest pushback you get
7: when you ask for that? Credibility. Here's the reality what I find. The bigger the portfolio, the more savvy the investor is. And savvy is not just intelligence. Savvy is business acumen, meaning they have teams, they have property management. But when you go to like the smaller multifamily, 50 to 150, these people, these landlords really have not put systems and processes in place. So they don't have a COO. They don't have an asset manager. They don't have a property manager. They're literally doing all this stuff themselves. So 50 to 150 units is the sweet spot. And guess what? They don't want to manage these properties. They want to get rid of them. So, if you want to go get a deal today, I'm doing this actually with bigger pockets right now. They go, show us you can do a deal in a day, multifamily, a 30 to a 50 unit deal in one day. I go, easy. That is actually incredibly easy. I go on, I pull a list of people who have owned the properties for over 15 years. If they haven't owned the property for 15 years, I don't call them. Then I want to find the people who have equity. This is the beautiful thing about. 2023 and 2024 is that we have technology that we didn't have 10 years ago. I can see what debt structures they have. I can see how much equity they have on the property. And we call people who have owned the property for over 50 years, under 150 units, over 50 units in markets that I want to buy in. And I call the landlords and I say, hey, I'm looking to acquire some multifamily. Saw your property. was wondering if you would be open to letting me pay top dollar and you giving me terms. The beautiful thing about multifamily is in a lot of ways, it's actually easier to do creative finance with multifamily than it is single family because I'm not educating the seller on creative finance. Most multifamily investors are like, yeah, I know what seller finance is. It's how I bought my property or it's how I finance a portion of my purchase. Multifamily uses seller finance so commonly, it's always used. Even the big brokers, they know about seller finance. I get a lot more pushback on single family because the homeowners don't know anything about real estate investing because it's their primary residence. But in multifamily, the biggest pushback I get is, well, how do I know you're not going to stop making payments? Because this sounds like a great deal to me. I don't have to manage the property. I get to become the bank. I don't have to pay all these taxes in one fell swoop when I sell the property. I don't have to go through a broker. We don't have to go through a survey. You don't have any loan contingencies. You're not going to beat me up on inspections and all that kind of stuff. This sounds like a dream come true, but how do I know you're going to make the payments? Yeah. So my answer to that is, well, look at my track history. And for a newbie, that's really tough. This is why I always tell people, go find a mentor that has credibility and will let you borrow their credibility to go have conversations with sellers. Go find somebody that's doing active deals so you can leverage the credibility from those active deals to go do your first deal, your 10th deal, your 20th deal. I didn't have that person, unfortunately, so I had to build all that credibility in my single-family world. And now when I go to multifamily seller and I say, hey, here's my schedule of real estate owned. I've got 300 single-family and I've got this much in multifamily. This is how you know I'm not going to fail to make my payments. Here's my P&L. If you want to talk to my CFO, here you go. Challenge is, guess what? I didn't have that when I first started. Now it's easy. I click my fingers and overcome that objection in two minutes. In fact, they go, "Yeah." how does this young guy that's 20 years younger than me, how does he have all this and I didn't? Well, it goes back to the mom and pop mentality. Multifamily investors between 50 units and 150 units are the mom and pop mentality. And they always looked at that property as that's my meal ticket for retirement. And I'm going to live off that property. So what they do is they buy these properties typically for tax advantages or whatever reason they buy the properties not ever intending to becoming a landlord, they become a landlord. And then 20, 30 years later, instead of repairing and renovating the property and raising the rents and continually turning over good quality tenants, what they typically do is they keep the tenants in their long term. They think they're doing them a favor and they go, I'm not going to raise the rents because these people have been with me. I'm going to be really loyal. I'm not going to turn over the properties because then I got to reinvest the cash flow. I was going to go take my wife on a cruise with, and I got to put it back into the units that are becoming vacant. And 30 years later, all of a sudden, they're like, I have a property that's in disarray, bad tenants, haven't raised my rents in a long time, can't raise my rents because I've got 1970s cabinets in this property and it's 2020. So that's my sweet spot. You wanna go get 150 units today? Go pull that list I told you, go have that conversation. You'll have a seller that his only objection is that he'll say, this sounds too good to be true. How do I know you're not gonna bail on me? And that was a mindset shift for me where I was, how do I get these deals? How do I go do these deals? Why would a seller agree to do this? When somebody asked me the question of why would a seller agree to sell to me on seller finance with $0 down, 3% interest, 50-year terms, and they say, why would a seller do that? They have automatically told me that that person asking the question has never spoken to a seller who is in a painful situation.
3: That's it for today, Best of Listeners.
7: I hope you enjoyed this roundup of
3: some of our favorite best ever clips from 2023 and be sure to tune in tomorrow and through the new year for more of the best of 2023 until then. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share it with someone you think could find some value in it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best-ever day.
0: Hi, best-ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best-ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best-ever newsletter Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.